Welcome back to another episode of the Abnormal Psychologist podcast. This is your host, Dr. Colby Taylor. I'm a psychologist in the state of Tennessee, and I'm an associate professor of behavioral sciences at Christian Brothers University in Memphis. And today is actually my last day of summer break. I start classes on Monday. I'm recording this episode August 18th, 2023. Classes start on Monday. I thought, what better way to spend your last day of summer break than recording a podcast? Um, I've actually been with my kids all morning. Um, today's the last day of daddy daycare. So I've been spending a ton of time with my kids over the summer, doing a lot of childcare. We've done a lot of adventures and stuff. And um, now that I'm starting back to school, I won't be able to spend as much time with them. So this morning we, we uh, went to downtown Memphis. We got some treats. We're going to go get ice cream after nap time. They're taking a nap right now. That's why I'm recording this episode. Um, and yeah, it's the back to school season. So I thought I would dedicate this episode to the back to school blues and then sort of related to that, the Sunday scaries. So we can start with the back to school blues. Um, professors get it too. Uh, one thing I, I'll let you in on um, is that I am a procrastinator, at least a procrastinator when it comes to getting ready for uh, the school year. And this week, I've been sort of inundated with emails from very eager students asking if they could have, have like an early copy of the syllabus. And honestly, I haven't fully like crafted out my syllabus yet. I'll probably, my first class is Monday morning. I'll probably finish my syllabus Sunday night. Um, uh, I've, I've got sort of a rough draft going, so I'm not just completely starting from scratch. But I'm a procrastinator, and I think part of that is due to the back-to-school blues Professors get them too. So we'll talk about that and we'll talk about school refusal a little bit. I'm going to do a lot of self-disclosure in this episode. So one thing you might be wondering if you haven't been one of my students or aren't one of my students is like, what does the first day of a Dr. Taylor class look like? And I'm a person that really likes to ease in to the semester. Uh, I remember I'm not too far removed from being an undergrad myself and uh, being an undergrad, being in grad school, the first day of class, the first day of school was always so intimidating, so anxiety provoking. Uh, oftentimes you would sit down and the professor would hand out this massive syllabus. Uh, you'd sit at your desk, you'd get this massive paper syllabus because this was back, uh, you know, 10 years ago. Things weren't digitized really. Um, I'm, th this year I'm like saving trees. Um, I'm going to not do a paper copy of the syllabus unless students request it. I'm just going to upload it to Canvas, which is sort of our uh, um, online platform or whatever. Um, but anyways, uh, it would be so intimidating looking over the syllabus and seeing everything like in a fall semester that you had due between August and December and, you know, massive amount of projects, papers, and you're just flooded with all this stuff you have to do and you feel overwhelmed. Um, some people start to have panic attacks uh, because it is overwhelming looking at the next four months in advance and everything that you have to do. And I really sort of want to avoid that with my students. I would also have professors that were like super eager to dive into course material. And again, you have stress hormones flowing. And I really feel like sitting down, taking notes, having like a, a substantive lecture on the first day of class probably goes in one ear and out the other because those stress hormones are flowing. Um, it was sort of off-putting to me if I had a professor that would just show up and dive right into material, not even really doing introductions. I've had those before. You just sit down and they just start lecturing. Um, so I'm really trying to avoid that in my own class. Uh, again, seeing a syllabus 
everything that you have to do on the first day of class. I do hand out the syllabus. We do go over the syllabus. Um, but I sort of use the, the phrase, the adage, how do you eat an elephant, which is probably not like PETA appropriate. Um, and, you know, it's one bite at a time. Don't go get overwhelmed looking at your syllabus and everything that you have to do uh, over the course of the next three or four months. And especially if you have like three or four classes stacked back to back and you've received all of these syllabi and all of this junk that you're not junk, it's not junk, it's worth something, but all of these assignments that you have to do over the course of a semester, that's super overwhelming. That's super anxiety provoking. Um, a lot of anxiety surrounding school starts when we're young. Um, more self-disclosure. Uh, when I was four years old, um, so I was in four-year-old kindergarten pre-K, um, my mom was a teacher at the school that I went to. She taught fourth grade right down the hall. And uh, the first few days of school, I would run out of the classroom screaming down the hall to my mom's classroom. Um, so I had some what we call school refusal. So school refusal is sort of a fancy term of kids that don't want to go to school which can sometimes lead to attendance problems. And the reasons they don't want to go to school vary, but a lot of times we're looking at anxiety. Um, and specifically, we're usually looking at sort of our SAD diagnosis. I, I, I've mentioned in previous podcasts, I hate the abbreviation SAD, but we're looking at separation anxiety disorder in younger kids, and then social anxiety disorder um, as you get older. Those two diagnoses tend to... Uh, be very common in kids that exhibit school refusal. Um, so anyways, I had some school refusal when I was a kid. Um, after a while, you know, we usually see in a week, two weeks, a month, um, symptoms lessen as the school year goes on. It's probably due just to like mere exposure from a behaviorism standpoint of showing up to school every day, nothing catastrophic happening. You get used to it and you get into the grind and you don't throw a temper tantrum or run down the hall or start crying um, every time that you separate from an attachment figure. Uh, also, that goes along with sort of school refusal. We see high cases of somatization. And I published an episode way back in season one on somatic symptom disorder. Somatization is sort of a fancy way of saying you exhibit bodily symptoms in the absence of a known physical cause. And so the old school term for this would be psychogenic. Uh, so this is like a psychogenic bodily symptom. So we get kids that complain of headaches, stomach aches, sore throats, those sorts of things. And the first week of school, they go to the school nurse, they get sent home, they get a strep test, whatever, and there's no physical cause. And a lot of times it's just anxiety that's leading to that. Um, that would be part of school refusal. I'm a little bit worried about my daughter Emerson. So my four-year-old Emerson is showing some signs of school refusal. Um, she's very, very anxious. Uh, she clings to mom and I at drop-off, sort of like a spider monkey. And at times her teacher, this was so like painful on the way to work, her teachers would have to like pry her hands off of our legs um, so that we could get out the door and get to our own jobs. You know, she'd cry and stuff. And apparently it would only last like one or two minutes and then she'd go and play with her friends and be fine. And that's really heartbreaking as a parent um, to have that happen. And again, anxiety disorders are highly genetic. So the apple might not fall far from the tree um, with Emerson. Uh, and maybe um, we could do some CBT, some cognitive behavioral therapy for school refusal. So that's probably the number one evidence-based treatment for school refusal. There's actually a protocol for CBT for school refusal. Um, the two main ingredients, if you will, 
um, are uh, coping strategies, right? So you develop strategies that uh, can cal- you can calm yourself, you can self-soothe. Um, with some kids, it's being able to take an attachment figure with them. So Emerson has a lovey that her teacher would allow her to take with her. Um, and sort of that comfort object helped at drop-off. You know, that wouldn't be necessarily appropriate for uh, an eight-year-old or a 10-year-old. Although I did have one kid once where the intervention was, um, I really liked gemstones and had like a worry rock he would keep in his pocket. So nobody else would really see it. It was sort of this smooth gemstone. And, uh, you know, when he would get worried or nervous at school, at drop-off, you know, he would rub um, the little rock, uh, the worry rock in his pocket. And that also served as sort of a, of a grounding exercise too, which was kind of cool. Uh, but attachment objects don't tend to fare as well, well um, or be as socially appropriate outside of preschool. Um, but yeah, there's CBT for school refusal, um, uh, sort of emotion regulation, uh, comforting strategies, self-soothing strategies. That's one main ingredient. The other main ingredient would just be exposure. Um, again, we know with time, anxiety, and you're, you, if you continue to be exposed to an anxious situation, an anxiety-provoking situation, usually your anxious response lessens. Um, so with a lot of kids, you know, August, September, at least in the United States, which is back-to-school season, that's when you get sort of the peak of anxiety stuff. You might get a little more after Christmas break. Any type of break, you're coming back from break. Um, uh, it can be harder to reintegrate to the school environment. So exposure, relaxation, self-soothing techniques, that's sort of what goes into CBT for, for school refusal. There's evidence that school refusal uh, has experienced an extreme uptick since the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, in prepping for this episode, I read several papers, including international papers that have shown that uh, school refusal as at an, is at an all-time high. Um, and this shouldn't be surprising because you had kids that were, you know, at home in comfortable environments, sometimes for as many as, as two years uh, doing uh, digital learning. And then now you're sort of thrown into a physical school environment um, away from your comfort place, away from your attachment figures. And if you have social anxiety disorder around strangers, you can see how those would be ingredients for um, anxiety. So school refusal on the rise since COVID-19. And um, I, I don't think research is quite caught up with uh, how severe and pervasive this problem might be. I mentioned a minute ago that exposure is a component of uh, CBT for school refusal. The flip side of exposure would be avoidance. And we know that avoidance can lead to increased anxiety. So one mistake a lot of parents make is, you know, you have your kid that's clinging to your leg like a spider monkey, you feel really guilty, and you're like, we're just not going to do school today. Or you have a child that's complaining about a sore throat, and you don't really think they have strep, but you're like, okay, I'm just going to be safe, I'm going to take you to the doctor. You do that every time, you're feeding into the kid's avoidance, and the anxiety gets so much stronger. You'll, you'll hear psychologists use the analogy of throwing a tiger a steak or some raw meat. That every time that you give in to your avoidance, you're throwing that tiger a stake and making that tiger just bigger and stronger and harder to uh, overcome. Um, this sort of makes sense, too, when we think about adulthood. So a lot of times uh, I want to take a mental health day or I have friends that want to take mental health days. Um, and you think, you know, you wake up one morning and you're like, I can't even do work. I can't even do school. 
I'm just going to stay home and work on my own mental health, um, which can be healthy sometimes. But I think that a lot of times it actually backfires because you're sort of throwing that tiger a stake. And when you return to work, you actually have makeup work to do, right? So your email inbox is twice as full. Your to-do list is twice as long, right? Because you're having to make up so much stuff while you were off. Um, and you become even more overwhelmed. And I think sometimes that happens with kids when they miss school, right? They have to do makeup work. Um, and getting back into school, getting back into the swing of things can be so much more difficult. So school refusal, stereotypically, sort of traditionally talked about as an early childhood problem. But it's something I don't think necessarily goes away. Um, I've seen it in high schoolers. Um, I had a high schooler once who had just gotten her driver's license. And uh, she was not absent from school a lot, but she tended to rack up the tardies. And I might've mentioned this in a previous episode. Um, she wouldn't show up to school until like 10 AM and the school started at eight. So she'd be like two hours late. And the reason that she was exhibiting school refusal, was anxiety based. She had calculus. She didn't like math. And that was her first period, her first class of the day. Um, so she was using the first two hours of the day as avoidance and going to Starbucks and rewarding herself um, and just sort of sitting in Starbucks for, for a couple of hours until um, calculus was over with. We also see in older um, individuals, sometimes this morph into oppositional defiant disorder. Um, and traditionally, sort of school refusal has been defined with the exception of like school refusal does not include not wanting to go to school because of antisocial tendencies. With that being said, we talked about in younger kids that sometimes school refusal can manifest as somatization. I think with older individuals, a lot of times it, and we're talking like older individuals, like 12 adolescents, um, that this can manifest as oppositional defined disorder. So instead of complaining that you have a stomach ache or a headache to get sent home from school so you don't have to go to school, you start cutting up in class. You start exhibiting behavioral problems so that you get suspension, you get sent home from school, and you achieve school refusal that way. So instead of using the means of bodily complaints, you're using the means of behavioral difficulties. And uh, the underlying um, function of that behavior could still be avoidance. I think we see that a lot of times in adolescents, especially adolescent boys. So they'll cut up in a class that they don't want to be in. They don't want to be in chemistry. They don't want to be in physics. They realize they're or they think that they're not good at science, so why not cut up in class, get sent home, get a few laughs out of it, um, maybe flirt a little bit on the way, way to the principal's office, and uh, you, you accomplish your goal. You accomplish your avoidance goal. As a professor, I'm going to be cognizant of this anxiety. I, I, again, I teach Monday, Wednesday, Friday in most of my courses, so I teach 16-week courses. If I'm teaching three times a week, it's like... I'm not a math person, 48 class meetings, I can spare the first class to sort of ease into things. And I know I, I hate it as a student, like professors doing corny icebreaker activities or whatever on the first day of class. Um, that's probably what I'll do. I'll give the syllabus. We'll do some corny icebreakers. I'll sort of introduce myself and that'll be enough for day one. Um, I like playing two truths and a lie with my students to show how bad I am at lie detection. Um, I feel like that's a fun way to get to know my students. Because um, I do want to get to know them. Most of my classes are only like 15 students. Um, so I get to know everybody's name and everybody's story. 
um, by the end of the semester, which is kind of cool. So day one, that's probably what I'm doing. So I've talked a lot about anxiety related to like back to school stuff, but anxiety's close cousin um, or sibling would be depression. And I think sometimes people get back to school blues uh, that anxiety um, can morph into depression or be comorbid with depression. You might have had an awesome summer break. You've been on vacation. You don't have as many demands on yourself. And, you know, now you're looking at three or four months of the grind of, of school. And you start to get depressed. And if this lasts two weeks or more, this can count as a major depressive episode. You can have major depression going back to school. And this can manifest with, with sleeping problems. Some people experience uh, insomnia or hypersomnia, sleeping too much as they get back into the swing of, of school. Um, you compound this if you're at the collegiate level with homesickness, right? You miss your parents. You, you might be moving from your hometown, especially freshmen. Um, I think that people, we need to do a better job at the university level of looking after our first year students more, especially in that transition from high school to college, because that's a big jump. And there's a lot of mental health care crises that can happen in those first few months of uh, setting foot on campus. And thinking about the back to school blues and thinking about sort of school refusal, school anxiety, that sort of thing. I, I made the analogy to the Sunday scaries. And so I started doing a deep dive into the Sunday scaries. And if you, if you don't know, which I assume most of my listeners probably have you know, experienced something like the Sunday scaries, most people's work week starts on a Monday. The end of the weekend is a Sunday, and as you approach Sunday, especially Sunday night, you start experiencing extreme anxiety, maybe not extreme anxiety, but some anxiety, some avoidance, some depression, some sadness about the start of the work week. Um, and that's essentially what the Sunday scaries are. And some people you know, will drink alcohol to cope. Some people will overeat to cope. Some people will experience sleep problems. Some people will just procrastinate and you know, not try to prepare for the week because they don't want to think about the rest of the week, and then it makes their week that much harder. So surprisingly, psychology hasn't done that much research on the Sunday scaries. Uh, anybody listening that wants sort of a research niche, do some stuff on the Sunday scaries. That is like an unexplored frontier in psychology. Because it's so acute, it usually only lasts, you know, 12 hours, 24 hours at most. Um, there's not really a diagnosis in the DSM-5 text revision for the Sunday scaries. You're not going to be able to flip through and find the Sunday scaries. Um, but it is cyclical. And, you know, I sort of myself, again, I teach Monday, Wednesday, Friday. On the weekend, I find myself getting anxious at the start of the work week, whatever. Especially on Sunday night, you get kind of sad. Um, walking this tightrope of between avoidance and procrastination um, and, like, preparation. So I'm sort of of two minds here. Like, how do you cope with the Sunday scaries? Uh, one would be sort of exposure, like thinking about your work week during the weekend, doing some prep, meal prep, um, cleaning your house, doing laundry, doing that sort of thing that'll make your work week that much easier. Maybe making sure that your inbox and your email is up to date. You know, you've caught up on all of your outstanding tasks and you're ready to start the weekend you know, sort of that exposure and even imagining your week ahead. You know, you have some people that will envision, envision like every single meeting, every single lecture, every single whatever, 
uh, to be super prepped going into the week. And with preparation, there's less anxiety because there's less ambiguity. You're all ready. Like I walk the tightrope between that, you know, which I think is great and can maybe help alleviate anxiety and sort of being mindful and being present in the weekend and not letting Monday morning monopolize your Saturdays and Sundays, right? Because all you can think about on Saturday and Sunday is your Monday morning. And there's some people that's the route they take, but like being mindful, being present in the weekend and partitioning off the weekend from the start of the week. So it's this sort of tight rope walking routine that I get into with the Sunday scaries. And it would be really interesting if somebody came up with like a treatment regimen for the Sunday scaries. Because I'd imagine that there would be this component of mindfulness, you know, staying present in the weekend, enjoying your weekend. Again, not letting Monday morning monopolize your Saturdays and Sundays while also doing some prep to make the rest of the week easier. Uh, I also think that you would have to do some like value-based stuff if you're doing treatment for the Sunday scaries. Like if you are every Sunday experiencing very extreme anxiety and dread at the start of the week, maybe you should think about finding another job. Maybe that dread is adaptive in some ways, right? It's telling you that you're not doing the right thing. Um, You're not sort of in the right niche. Uh, Maybe you should seek out another job. You know, if it's that bad, um, maybe your values aren't aligning with what you're doing on a day in and day out basis. Um, I think it's, this is really normal. I think most people, people, even people that love their jobs, enjoy their jobs, experience some degree of the Sunday scaries. But if you're experiencing it very severely, it might be time to, you know, call a, call an audible, um, on your career. I'm interested to hear what listeners have to say about the Sunday scaries and about the back to school blues. Again, I see them as sort of related to one another. Uh, it's very interesting too, and timely. I was prepping for this episode and on August 11th, Uh, or it was actually, yeah, August 11th, the American Psychological Association posted an article on five ways to make your Mondays less overwhelming, uh, which I thought was really interesting. Um, Monday is America's least favorite day of the week, uh, this article cites. Um, I'm not very surprised by that. And most people experience more stress on Monday um, than any other day. Women, it seems like, experience the Sunday scaries worse than men. Um, and sort of in their five ways to make your Mondays better. And they do a hashtag bare minimum Mondays, um, which I guess would be sort of what I'm doing with my back to school classes, the bare minimum, like first day of school, first class. Um, uh, the first is change the way you do Fridays. Um, saying, and you know, a lot of people slack off on Fridays and it becomes sort of a celebration day. You might let your tasks roll over to the next week. And instead of doing that, which makes Monday that much harder, just, you know, work on Friday. Um, don't take that long lunch break or that, uh, you know, early hour or two off of work um, and get prepped for your Monday. Uh, be present with your emotions. So acknowledge, you know, don't, don't try to block out that you're anxious, that you're stressed. Sit with that, acknowledge it. Try to feel out why you're anxious. Um But don't try to squash your emotions. Be present with them. Acknowledge them. Don't try to get rid of them. Um, uh, Balancing your weekends is number three on here. Uh, Make sure that you rest on your weekends. um, Or try to be productive and do things that might prep you for the work week ahead. 
Um, on weekends, number four is focus on quantity over or quality over quantity. Um, and there's a quote here by Radice Vea, uh, who's the, one of the psychologists that wrote this article. Our culture conditions us to believe we always have to be busy. And the more we do, the happier we'll be, which is sort of like shoulding, right? That you always should be doing something and you can never relax because you, you always should be doing something. You can't just sit on the couch and veg out for a little bit. Um, so instead of having a to-do list that's 30 items long and, you know, you're sort of mechanically rote going through that to-do list and not really enjoying anything or doing anything particularly well, focus on one or two things that are meaningful to you that you can knock out on your to-do list. And number five is look at Monday as a fresh start. Um, uh, you know, you're turning over a new page, uh, um, and the, the week has so much possibility ahead and um, think about all of the possibility in that week. Positive possibility. Don't start catastrophizing and thinking about everything that could go wrong um, in that week. And think of, think of Monday as sort of a fresh start. It could be the best week of your life. Um, and hopefully, for you all listening, if you're students, this will be the best semester of your life. Um, that's it on the Sunday Scaries and the Back to School Blues. Again, send me an email, ctayllo41 at cbu.edu. I'm curious, do y'all experience this? What are some of your coping strategies? Um, I'm really interested from a student's perspective uh, to hear, or a worker's perspective, a lot of you work, you, how you deal with the, the Sunday Scaries, Back to School Blues, what have you. Um, all right. You can email me that, ctaylo41 at cbu.edu. You can also do an episode request, ask me questions, send me hate mail, whatever. Um, you can put in the, the subject line mailbag. And we do have a mailbag email. We actually have a couple today, but I'm only going to read through one today. Um, and this is from uh, McKenna. And she says, I've been listening to your podcast for only a few weeks, and I'm hooked. Thank you for breaking down complex topics. Um, she's going to a university in the northwestern Pacific Northwest United States, um, although I know my passion is psychology, I'm not sure what career I want to pursue. Could you do an episode on psychology careers? Um, I think that's a really great idea. Um, and we actually offer a class at CBU. It's something I didn't take as an undergrad on, like what you can do in the field of psychology, uh, because there's so many different options beyond sort of the stereotypical being a counselor, being a psychologist. So I'd love to do an episode on psychology careers. I can teach a whole semester's course on that. Um, other ideas I have, and these, these are great ideas too, love languages, different types of grief, like loss of a child versus loss of a grandparent or loss of identity. That's, that's super interesting. Um, when I was in grad school, we had an, an expert. I never took a class from him um, on grief. Um, and then psychology during pregnancy, which is super, super important. Um, we, we, one of my new colleagues at CBU um, her specialty is postpartum psychology, which is not psychology during pregnancy, but I think would make another really interesting episode topic. Um, she goes on, I have a ton of others, but those are my favorites. I can't wait to keep binge listening on your podcast. Thanks again. Thank you for the email and thank you for those ideas. Um, I, I, again, I think this is going to be a great semester ahead and hopefully in the next few months we can knock out the best episodes yet of this podcast. I feel like the best are yet to come. And that's because of you all. Send me ideas, send me uh, comments on the episodes, and um, nap time's almost over. So I'm going to get these kids up and we're going to go get some ice cream. So until next time, take care and stay well. <laughs>